0: Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. Continuing our occasional look at the five-volume RIA series of publications, Art and Architecture of Ireland, this evening on Arts Tonight we look at Volume 3, Sculpture 1600-2000. With me in studio is that volume's editor, Paula Murphy, as well as William Gallagher, art lecturer and writer and a contributor to the volume. And by Cliona Shaffrey, director of Temple Bar Gallery and Studios in Dublin with involvement with public art and sculpture across Ireland. Before we start our discussion though, let's hear artist Maud Cotter on art and sculpture.
1: Tell you what, I was going to be a social worker and then eventually I walked into the College of Art with three drawings and turned out to be three days before term but I had an interview and they said start Monday. So I started and within two weeks, you know, the first task I got to do was um, John Burke, the sculptor, asked us to write an essay on why we're in the art college. And after two weeks, I knew 100 percent that I wanted to make things that I was a sculptor. And that was it. I actually found it recently. (laughs) It was very weird because I was just going through some boxes at home. So um, I was always a maker since I was a child. So that was it. In the fullness of time the the compulsion and the need to make is is very strong, so yeah and, and at the same time, the broader context of artist in terms of how I engage with the um, programs that include collaborative things that include other people, so that would have a certain educational remit or an explorative remit in terms of ideas. In terms of the little bit of writing you do, other forms of engagement, commissions. So it broadens into what is a sort of fuller practice in terms of artist. But certainly the word sculpture and sculptor is very at the heart of what I do. I'm working in a body of work which is going to a show in London in the Dome of Bale. So it's my first one-person show in London. Up in the MAC in Belfast in 2013, I did a two-hander with Carl Burke, curated by Hugh Mulholland, titled The Air They Capture is Different, and it showcased both our works together um, throughout the space of the MAC, which is a fabulous gallery. And um, one of Dona artists had platformed a piece there as well. So she saw my work and developed an interest in it. That's it, really. It just shows the importance of places like the new West Cork Art Centre, Illen, you know, providing new space. Um, it's a kind of an acrobatic thing. Artists need a space, well-funded public space, to express themselves in, as well as, obviously, support. It's something that's concerning me at the moment, actually, because there's a shift now with the emergence of the economy again that artist spaces are going to be under pressure, Um, I think it takes a sort of a civic-mindedness and a a support in terms of a broader cultural remit that acknowledges the value of cultural intensity in a city, that culture which will attract um, visitors because, of course, people like to be in an active, culturally fluent city. So I would appeal to Cork City Council and landlords in the city to facilitate these artists. It would be a shame to lose that cluster that has developed... Individual artists, like myself, have a sense of the context of practice. One is not alone. You know, there is the whole sort of environment within which we work. That's so important, which is why one's label as an artist has a full community sense to it. The community of artists and collaborative and creative relationships, you know, that's very important. And the people who have sustained the recession and set up new things, they should really be taken on board, that energy be supported and extended as a legacy for future cultural health, really.
0: Artist Maud Cotter there. Paula Murphy, as editor of this volume in the RIA series, what was your vision? Um, a significant period of time, of course, covered here, a subject, sculpture that for much of the period, continued, I suppose, relatively unchanged and unchallenged, but underwent a radical transformation since the mid-1900s.
2: The vision for the volume grows out of Walter Strickland's Dictionary of Irish Artists, published in 1913-1914. That's the start, there's a springboard for the five volumes in effect. So it was always going to have biographies. There are approximately 250 in the book, and it was also dealing with living artists which of course Strickland didn't do which was certainly a challenge and the biographies were going to be different because certainly they were going to be more analytical more critical as well I thought also there should be contexts hence thematic essays so that rather than just having standalone biographies now I'm reading about John Henry Foley and now I'm reading about Michael Quayne. actually where does this sculpture go? Who are the sculptors working for? Um, how do the viewers interact with the with the work? Th- these were the sort of things I wanted to look at in a series of thematic essays. So there are about 45, 50 uh, thematic essays in the book. All of this needed to be introduced and it's quite interesting how the introduction often comes at the end. I thought it was important to look at the narrative of sculpture over that period. So Looking at what was happening in Irish sculpture from sixteen hundred up to two thousand, and the three interesting things that emerge from that are that in the early centuries, foreign sculptors, either coming to work in Ireland or their work being sent over from London, some talking about the Van Nos, Peel people like Peter a Flemish sculptor working in London, a lot of his work here in Ireland. That was the work that was important in the early centuries. In the nineteenth century, It's our sculptures going out of Ireland. So we have many sculptors leaving the country in the course of the 19th century, particularly up to just after the mid-19th century, going to work in London and becoming the leading British sculptors of the day, which is really pretty significant. And then in the 20th century, something extraordinary happens. And it's really in the last two decades of the century when the nature of sculpture is just transformed completely. So... What we had understood as sculpture from antiquity up to the later part of the 20th century, form in space, that was sculpture, usually made in a lasting material, bronze or marble, intended to be around forever, whatever forever means, but, to be lasting. That sort of sculpture continues to be made, continues to be made very well, those materials still used. But in addition to that, we get artists, because they don't necessarily want to be called sculptors, some of them do, some of them don't at this stage, making what we can call sculptural work out of anything. Absolutely any material can be used for making sculpture today. And not only that, uh, some of the materials they're using are ephemeral, they're transient. So they're making sculpture that is only around a week, two weeks, a month, a year, but gone. So we have been used to the idea that sculpture was something that endures. And and as I say, just at the end of that period, it all changes
0: one of the things that has fascinated me about these five volumes is is how each one takes a different form. So here, as you said, uh, you have the biographies, you have the thematic essays, you have this really rich display of, of photographs and, and reproductions of, of images. Um, and the list of essays alone, I, done alphabetically as well, shows the variety of material in the book from arts and crafts, sculpture, churchyard and cemetery, famine sculpture, lettering and inscriptions, memorial and nationalist sculpture, the nude, St. um, Wood carvings and so on. So that'll give people some idea of, of the range mm. that's here. It also struck me that you've brought so much in, into context from old publications. You mentioned Strickland. Mm. Uh, but right through from as it was certainly from the early 19th century, people were writing about sculpture. And sometimes in in unexpected journals and publications that you use to put so much of this in perspective.
2: For the earlier centuries. Anyone writing on sculpture is very dependent on newspapers and eventually journals. So go back to the very early ones like Saunders Newsletter and uh, Faulkner's coming forward a little bit. The Freemans Journal, invaluable actually. The Nation, The Dublin Builder, an architectural newspaper coming out um, twice a month also covering uh, sculpture. So these are important actually for information because th- there is not a huge amount of archival material on on sculpture from the early centuries not not and we've lost a lot of material in the country anyway but one of the reasons I think that we find material in the newspapers is and it, it has to do with the public nature of sculpture. there are unveilings if there isn't an unveiling I'm in despair because if there is an unveiling I, the chances are I'm going to find out some more information. And some of the unveilings are very long reports of them. Now a lot of it is the toing and froing in the procession and who's first and who's last. Exactly. But the speeches are often interesting because they often reveal what's behind the sculpture and what it is hoped the sculpture will do. I mean you often find in the speech at an unveiling and, and this coming out in a newspaper that the hope will be that this will bring the community together, which it won't necessarily do at all, but on the other hand that's that's sort of behind it. Strickland, very important, very very important, and actually also in uh, for writing on Irish sculpture, Rupert Gunness published a dictionary of British sculptors, given a date span of 1660 to 1851. He published that in 1951, and of course, that period he's looking at Irish sculptors come into it. So his work was also invaluable.
0: And religious journals then like the Caption Annual.
2: Absolutely, the Caption and the Father and the Matthew Record, and the Furrow. Yes, very much. And and some of them Concentrating a little bit on the furrow, a little bit, not not specifically, but concentrating a little bit on religious sculpture, which was always interesting to to discover because there was a lot of it, and there were even competitions of for religious art. The the Father Matthew records some very perceptive writing in that. Maureen Allen writing in the 20th century, the 1940s, writing very very well on on, on sculptors and and sort of almost foreseeing where some of them would go. General writing on Irish art, you know, sort of overview books on Irish art, have tended, I feel, a little bit to have sculpture as slightly as an afterthought. I mean, it's there, yes, but not enough attention given to it, the attention given to to painting and to architecture in them. Homan Potterton, I suppose, the former director of, of the National Gallery, was one of the first to actually address sculpture independently. He published a book on Irish church monuments in 1975 and the funny thing is I think actually he had the same inspiration as I had because he was a student I think in Edinburgh University where Alistair Rowan the architectural historian uh, was teaching at the time and I think he encouraged him into sculpture. He in a roundabout way encouraged me into it as well because he became professor of art history in UCD. And when I began teaching there, he encouraged me to teach a seminar on neoclassicism. And neoclassicism, William might dispute this with me, but I think neoclassicism is, is rooted in antique sculpture very much at the source of what neoclassicism is all about. And So a very so natural on. move so for
0: you into, into the world of sculpture. Absolutely,
2: then into our sculpture.
0: The materials and methods used in, the, in sculpture, of course, are examined in considerable detail in the book. The making of casts was central to the craft and art of the sculpture over a long period. And as Peter Murray, director of the Crawford Gallery in Cork, explains, the result of the securing of a set of casts into Cork City in the early 19th century was the impetus for the setting up of a Cork school of art.
3: We're in the sculpture gallery of the Crawford Art Gallery, specifically to house the Canova cast collection that had come to Cork in 1818. The room still provide that very function today. Very high ceilings and windows on the clear story, like on the first story level, but at the ground level, no windows. So the sculptures and the outlines of the sculptures can be appreciated against the dark red background. It has been, since 1884, the home of the castes, and um, there was always that feeling that the castes needed to be looked after. They're quite delicate, it's not just those casts made by Canova in the Vatican Museums. We also have stone sculptures, wooden sculptures, steel. There's a few by contemporary artists. Maud Cotter is one, John Gibbons. And we've had temporary interventions by Dorothy Cross, and we're having one by Vivian Roach, where contemporary artists work within the context of this classical and neoclassical. But by and large, we call these, or the collection, we call it the Canova casts the castes were a gift to the prince regent of great britain after the battle of waterloo when napoleon was defeated they had to send back quite a number of works of art to different countries they had amassed treasures and when the when the works went back to the vatican the french did not give them up you know at, at the first request and um, Prince Regent and the British government were actually very uh, helpful to the Vatican. They, they were so delighted that, that the Pope commissioned Canova, who was his curator and the most famous neoclassical sculptor of his day, to make a whole series of casts of the most famous work in the Vatican Museum. And these were sent then from Rome to London, and they were displayed in a circular building in Carlton Gardens, this large circular building designed by John Nash and um, as essentially the political map of Europe was being redrawn the ambassadors from different countries would very often assemble in this building surrounded by the Canova cast and when Carlton Gardens was, was being demolished, or, or Regent Street was being constructed, uh, Viscount Ennismore, who was a good friend of the uh, Prince Regent, asked if the castes could be donated to the Society of Arts in Cork, and that was agreed, and very quickly were on board a ship. They arrived in late 1818, and as soon as they arrived, they caused this incredible ferment of activity, and... Um, Instantly, almost an art school was founded around them. Initially, the casts were housed in what was a former theatre called the Apollo Theatre on Patrick Street. The theatre was effectively closed and turned into an art academy. And among the initial students, the three greatest names in Cork art Samuel Ford, Daniel McLeese, and John Hogan. And it was something that was very much fueled by the merchant princes of Cork. But the merchant princes were extremely effective when they got things going. They had become patrons of the art, and they wanted to become patrons of the art. and They had money to become patrons of the art in quite a lavish way. So houses like Woodhill, the, Pen, the Cooper Penrose House in, in Cork, and indeed Viscount Denismore's house, Convermore and the bank, banks of the Blackwater near Fermoy, Castle Hyde, became uh, emblems of prosperity. In the 18th century, houses like Kilshanig and others had had marvellous plasterwork ceilings by... Lafrancini brothers, and, and um, there was enormous wealth. A lot of it generated from agriculture. And uh, indeed, the wars on the continent with where, where the British army fighting Napoleon's armies brought enormous prosperity to Cork because it was butter, meat, horses, and, and these basic provisions that were made in Cork. And um, as you see in the Merrill House, And it still has wonderful ceilings with stucco work by Franchinis, but it's now used for administrative purposes. Um, In the 18th century, it was the home for a number of notable works of art, including Joseph Wilton's sculpture of William Pitt the Elder, which was sculpted in 1766. And we're we're looking at it right now. And this full-length marble portrait of William Pitt the Elder, the first Earl of Chatham and Prime Minister, It's in a very good state of preservation. It shows Pitt dressed in a flowing Roman toga, over-18th-century dress, standing as if about to speak. And Wilton was one of the best sculptors working in London in the mid-18th century. And um, he made four versions, and this one is the one that's in the best state of preservation. The others were in Boston, in Charleston, and there was one in New York City. And unfortunately, well, the one in Charleston was damaged. The one in New York was destroyed by British Marines in the first years of the 19th century. And the one in Boston was destroyed during the War of Independence. The one in Cork, rather miraculously, has survived intact. And the reason that Cork, Charleston, New York, and Boston commissioned these sculptures, and it was the cities that commissioned them, because William Pitt had been responsible for repealing acts... Uh, his his role as Prime Minister and his reforms of of taxation policy had enabled a degree of prosperity to come to Cork, and it's one of the treasures of the Crawford. It's surrounded by several works by John Hogan. They date from the early and mid-19th century. We also have the earliest work done by Hogan and Cork which is this wonderful sort of wooden sculpture here, a classical figure which was designed as um, a sculpture to adorn an insurance building on the South Mall. And it's now preserved in the Crawford Gallery. And in terms of 20th century, there are works by Seamus Murphy. You see the Virgin of the Twilight there. But overall, the feeling is of sculpture. You can walk around these sculptures and you look at them from different angles. And as the light changes you can see them literally changing. When they were first installed, there was an awful lot of work that had to be done because many of the sculptures that are on show now were actually broken or very badly damaged, so much so that they could not have been exhibited. What you're seeing today is a culmination of you know, work by a great number of different people, including the, the making of plinths and uh, these scaliolic columns for displaying the busts, the restoration of the sculptures themselves and also we brought in works such as this um, John Bacon sculpture which is called the Tracton Memorial we're standing beside it I guess it's about oh, nearly 16 feet high it's a massive beautiful sculpture and it was in a church in Cork and the church became disused so we transferred this sculpture into the Crawford Gallery And so you've got John Bacon, who's a very eminent 18th century sculptor working in London, right beside Joseph Wilton. And then, again, beside this, we have a a portrait, a full-length portrait of uh, King James. Now, King James, it's interesting, the head is a replacement. King James's head was knocked off at a time when his political popularity was uh, at an all-time low. And it was replaced with this rather anodyne classical head as if it's a figure of of Athena. But that was exposed to weather for, for, I guess, the best part of a century and a half. But again, it's been restored as best it can be, although it has suffered more the ravages of time. But without the head of King James and with, with its replacement head, it's a curiosity ra- rather than one of the Crawford's treasures. And um, this is a sculpture, Laocoon and his Sons. It's uh, the original dates from the 3rd century B.C. And the original sculptors, we think, were Athenodorus, Agisandros, and Polyodorus, three Greek sculptures. The interesting thing about this sculpture is that the original is completely lost. It's probably the Hellenistic sculpture described by Pliny. It depicts the Trojan priest of Apollo and his sons who had angered the gods by advising the city of Troy not to accept the wooden horse as a gift. And by so doing, and having angered the gods, particularly Poseidon, the god of the sea, They were attacked by sea serpents, and it's a vivid, dramatic sculpture. In the Vatican Museum, there is a copy made in Roman times, made 300 years after the original. That's the one that was uncovered in excavations and which was brought in triumph in fragments to the Vatican when it was discovered during excavations. I think it was at the Bath of Titus. And when it was brought to the Vatican, immediately... In the early 1500s, they said, let us create a museum of these classical sculptures because we're discovering them all over the city. And they got a sculptor called Montorsoli to restore it, and he glued it back together as best he could, as best he thought fit. And Canova is commissioned in 1815, thereabouts, to make a copy of this sculpture in the Vatican. So his sculpture, which is in the Crawford Gallery today... It's a snapshot of Lao Kun and of course it would be one of the great treasures of the art world of art if the original were ever to be discovered. It's very likely that the original was bronze and was melted down, as nearly every bronze sculpture from classical time has been melted down. The the reason that when you walk around the Vatican Museum and you see all of these, you know, white sculptures, they're stone and they very often, the only reason that they survived is because they're made of stone, therefore had no commercial value, whereas metal always had a commercial value, and even today, sculptures made of metal are often in danger of being melted down for scrap value. So this is a a, a copy by Canova in plaster of the version that's in the Vatican Museum that is in itself a copy of an original... That's now lost. And I'd say 80% of what we're looking at is what those three brilliant Greek sculptures created in the 3rd century BC. But about 10% is speculative or indeed fictional. And this arm, it's not classical. So this is actually a little piece of art historical play, if you like. This is an 18th century edition that was fashionable at the time. And it underlines the fact that Lao Kun is not a fixed document. It actually accords to almost the spirit of the age. And so the version we have now, uh, it's a history of, of like art history from the Renaissance onwards. While at first glance you might think this is a fixed classical sculpture, that everybody should absolutely revere. In fact, you find that it's a jigsaw puzzle that people have made and remade o- over the centuries.
0: Peter Murray there in the Sculpture Gallery in Cork's Crawford Gallery and a fascinating insight into the intertwining of sculpture and history. Uh, Paula, lost and destroyed is a category in in this volume of the RIA books and as Peter Murray was saying there, uh, the loss and destruction of, of, a, of sculpture can tell a lot about human engagement with it how it matters or calls up allegiances or indeed encourages disregard. And it's not just in in the realm of politics and war that this is evident.
2: No, absolutely not. And interesting to hear um, Peter talking about the cast collection in in Cork, which is such a fine collection and which has endured. We had several cast collections in Dublin and none of them exist anymore. And they are lost to us, I think probably for two reasons. One will be neglect. When they're put into storage, they need to be very carefully stored. But it's also fashion. Castes, which were so significant in the 18th century and even on into the 19th century, just went out of fashion in the early 20th century with the development of modernism. And students by the mid-century didn't want to be studying casts in art um, schools, I should say, anymore. People didn't bother looking after them. So we lost... I mean there's a, wonder, there's a photograph in the book actually the sculpture room in the National Gallery of Ireland when it opened was a room of casts, very very fine casts and they no longer exist so it's, it's sad that we've lost them to say they've come back into fashion um, they have a little bit because now we find actually people are writing books on them and there are conferences being held so there's a lot of information coming about them so poor materials being used, does anyone remember the millennium countdown clock? <laughs> yeah, <indeed. laughs> <laughs> yeah. <You> know, yeah. <laughs> which just sank without trace yeah. i think it's yeah. probably the way yeah. to put it you know so they they disintegrate they implode <laughs> they break up but i probably in in this country more than anything else they have been targeted, imperial monuments. In, well, nationalist monuments actually have also been targeted, you know, the blowing up of, of Maid of Aaron statues and so on. We have lost a lot of our imperial monuments across the country. Queen Victoria, of course, uh, deported Queen, to Australia. Queen Green. Victoria, <laughs> Queen Victoria. I mean, I, I think William Third in College Green, in many ways, probably the most interesting of them because in many ways, the most revered sculpture in the city, far portion of the population and the most hated sculpture in the city for another portion of the population and it was in place for more than 200 years you know we think goodness it might have been there for a little while and then they got rid of it more than 200 years. 1701, it was erected. 1928 is the last time there's a. And it was a, a rallying
0: a, point for for royalists. Rallying,
2: wasn't it? yeah, absolutely. An orange procession, orange men in effect, processing through the city. Two days in the year, the anniversary of the birthday of the king and the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, because the monument was erected very specifically to commemorate victory in the Battle of the Boyne. So used uh, as a rallying point, speeches made and volleys fired, and the, the statue was even decorated for the purpose and one summer um, it was about 1836 when there were three attempts to blow it up so constantly uh, it was the one statue that was never ever going to be left anywhere actually I think in Dublin but the range of monuments from the earlier centuries is not as extensive as it should be for a city of this nature.
0: I want to talk in a moment about architecture and sculpture and public sculpture. Um, but before that, Paula, just tell me a little bit about your choice of images for the front and back covers of, of this book. Because in a sense, they I think they could be said to illustrate the journey undergone by sculpture uh, across the period covered by the volume.
2: The front cover, which shows this in a sense single image um, and then kind of fading into the distance. I chose that very particularly because to me, it says so much about what sculpture is. It's a detail of a work by Leoden Cook, Irish born, but her father was the painter Barry Cook and she actually returned uh, to work in England in the 1990s. And she did this work for an exhibition in the Boiler House in London in 1998, and it was an installation. And what she had done when she left Ireland was she had taken 21 balls of clay, which she had dug in a field herself, and she brought them with her over to England. She didn't know why she did it. Um, but she thought at some stage she might use them. And, and she has said at one point, actually, in an interview about found objects, you know she might pick something up and she think, I'll use that at some stage in a sculpture. So this is what the clay, I think, was about. When she was invited to do work for this exhibition, she decided to cast these balls of clay in aluminium and they were laid out on the floor in, in a, a sort of factory-type space, those new spaces that were used for sculpture displays uh, towards the end of the 20th century. The detail of the work, what it says about sculpture f- form in space, Uh, The sculptural form, the texture, the finish of the work, the transformation from one material to another, in this instance, from clay to aluminium, the installation, the new type of sculpture, the new type of display environment. These were the sort of things I was seeing in this. I also thought on the front cover, the single motif attracts the eye. um, And with the word sculpture above it, it seemed to me to say everything about sculpture. The image on the back cover, it relates to a photograph that I took of um, that dying warrior in Kilruddery a number of years ago. I was a bit proud of my own photography. I thought it was a jolly good image that I had taken. But the resolution wasn't good enough to use on the back. So we had to get a professional photographer to go and replace (laughs) mine. But picked that in terms of sculpture because it's a copy of an ancient sculpture. Uh, We've been talking about copying already. So antiquity copying. It's set in a garden. It's in Kilruddery. It's in this sort of forest From land the 1860s. there. the Yes. And therefore it's garden sculpture as well. So again, so many aspects of what is being discussed in the book, in a sense evident in these images on the front and back cover.
0: Continuity and change. Yep. Um, the meeting points obviously of, of architecture and sculpture are, are fascinating and well documented in the book the move towards a more sculptural aesthetic in modern architecture and collaborations then between sculptors and architects. William Gallagher, you write about a number of sculptors whose work has often reached over into the realm of large public space and architecture. Michael Warren, for instance, and uh, his work with Ronnie Tallon, very important. Michael, who uh, has featured on this programme, I suppose occupies a very particular space in the story of, of modern Irish architecture.
4: One of the big developments in the last, say, 30, 40 years is the way that architecture, sculpture within the architectural setting has become independent of its um, framework. I mean, if you look back, and one of the wonders of the book is to see this back in the 1800s, how sculptures were. So sympathetic with their setting. I mean, figural sculpture outside was very similar to figural sculpture attached to buildings, and there was this expectation that they would somehow sort of harmonise together. And I think one of the understandings of contemporary art is that the artist is independent; they don't have to defer to the architectural agenda. And so how do you actually manage that? And I think part of the significance of Warren is that he's sort of an international figure uh, who's Metier was made possible partly by collaboration with very modernist architects. So even though the sculpture is very sympathetic to the buildings, it's not that he has had to adjust to the building um, it's that he's found patrons and sort of visionary figures who know what he's trying to get at.
0: Uh, it, was, it was fascinating to see his exhibition in visual in Carlo and uh, how his work Coexisted with that space.
4: Well, of course, yes. Sculpture is is spatial, and he's a master of that. Without being declamatory or or uh, rhetorical, I mean, it's all about inwardness. And so you've got minimalist spaces, and the slightest adjustment in his work makes you read the space somewhat differently. But I have to say, for instance, that's an aspect of the work that I didn't even get into, and it's something we have to recognise. With no matter how nuanced and extensive the book is, there is that recognition that we, you can simply touch on aspects of the um, of the individual. Artist,
0: You've written the catalogue note I know for Janet Malarney's current exhibition in the Highlands Gallery in Drogheda Mm -hmm. um, and she has been described by Aidan Dunn as (coughs) an outstanding talent and one of Ireland's foremost sculptors. Um, A fascinating mix of influences and themes and indeed a hugely international scope again in her work
4: well that 's right, and I think again, in keeping with a lot of modernist you know, contemporary art, the sort of the definition gets less and less important. Um, she is a sculptor, but as you engage with the work, you sort of forget about sculpt, you know the sculpture issue it 's um what is she connecting with so there are formalists and you like Warren whose work is um, you, you get very aware of the object you're looking at. Whereas I think part of Janet's brilliance is that you sort of dive into what she's saying and it's less important that they're branded as sculpture. From your
0: reading and study of this whole area when you look at Irish sculpture now in an international context are we conservative? Where where do we fit and is there is there much innovation coming in?
4: Well there, are, there, is, there is everything you know um, there's conservatism there and I think one of the strengths of the book is that it doesn't shy away from the dimension of art making that is very traditionalist and so populist works of sculpture the Molly Malone they're included and I think that's right um, but by the same token we have artists who Work almost completely abroad, Jared um, Byrne, or what you know, their 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 art is made within an international context. So I think one of the strengths of the books is that it, the book that is that it puts these things side by side without estimation. It doesn't um, judge.
0: Cliona Chaffrey the one percent scheme for art in local councils, uh, I suppose, has led to a large scale public art network around the country. A good deal of it incorporating public sculpture um, remind us how that has worked and what sort of public art it has given us
5: and The Percent for Art scheme I think was introduced into Ireland in back in the late or late 1980s and it enabled a percent of the capital funding to go towards a uh, at the time, it was, I think it was known as the embellishment scheme, so it went towards a public sculpture. And um, so it was not uh, something that was mandatory, and commissioning was kind of random, depending on maybe if the architect, or maybe there wasn't even a county architect, if the local engineer or the county engineer knew. So um, since its instigation in the late 80s up to today, I mean, there's been a vast change in the practice, as Paula has indicated even at the beginning of her introduction there where the practice has you know evolved from the permanent sculpture to um, practices that are now considered much more about maybe um, setting up a scenario in which people will meet and discuss things and it opens opens up you know where there's actually perhaps the material side of things matters but it's not it's but there's social space that might so happen. context
0: and and everything so else So context becomes so
5: important mm-hmm. and I think that um, again in, in the early period of this I mean I think there was a, a kind of a sense that there was a two tier or say maybe public art commissions percent for art commissions were kind of maybe if, if to be fair somewhat second class citizens not necessarily what you might do if you were an innovative avant gardist artist. But um, I think that's changed phenomenally, and now you have this wonderful fluidity of artists practicing in galleries and then taking on public commissions. And uh, obviously, works like Dorothy Cross's Ghost Ship in Scotsman's Bay and Delirium would have been significant. And you, you were the change. arts
0: officer in Delirium Rathdan at the time.
5: I, you? I was, yeah, yeah, I was. I was out there. It was obviously a NIMA nissan commission and i think it was probably one of the most ambitious funds although actually nothing like what probably the project required it's one of those pieces of work that allowed people to gather and you witnessed it and then it lives on in the memory and now it's part of Part of a story. And I suppose it,
0: again, it, in a sense, it, it quietly challenged our expectation of sculpture. You know, what has what's described as sculpture, yeah. and and how we view
6: it in yeah. the landscape.
5: Ab- absolutely, I think all little projects happening like Patricia McKenna's Grey House down in Cavan as well was a, was another really interesting early project. Again, the house was already made an empty, abandoned vessel in which she was exploring the emigration and the loss of people out of rural Ireland and it was the most uncanny extraordinary temporary piece that lasted for the summertime as long as she could go up and down and to the house and uh, so the the changing way that we understand and engage with public art and public sculptures has, has
0: has changed a lot In was in yeah. I partly as a result of all that um, the,
2: the, the way in which people were able to engage with the Grey House eventually was mm. because she couldn't be there all the time they put a key in one of the local shops so people went and they got a key for the house and went so to view go the in work by themselves, themselves and, yeah, and which look. is an extraordinary experience I remember um, as well
0: there was a, a wonderful exhibition a sculpture trail in Ackle I think it was in 1996 and Paula you referenced this uh, in your introduction at the Chirsol mm. exhibition mm. I was lucky enough to see it mm. and I'll never forget forget some of the even some of the sounds the sound of a cement mixer in an abandoned concrete house on on the edge of a cliff echoed in a, a small little mixer in the in the local pub full of postcards and mm. images and mm. a series of mirrors on on a curry lake which just sat like petals floating on the Beautiful. water as extraordinary like lilies you know lily pads yeah. on the water and th- those sorts of images stay and again they're part of that changing landscape of of sculpture in in the public realm and, and how we see and describe sculpture. Kate, as was, would you say then overall that the Percent for Art scheme has been a success in terms of bringing public sculpture to us, but also maybe challenging how we see it?
5: I think it has been a success. I think it's had its rocky moments and everything, but I actually think it's been a great success. First of all, it allows artists who are practising as we've described and across mediums and everything to take on ambitious projects to get funding for them to inquire into areas of their own interest and to bring those interests into public context. There's one example that's just on at the moment is Cleanna Harmy's Dublin Ships which is on the Schertzer Bridge in the, on the North Keys Dublin Docklands which is very sophisticated piece of technology that has allowed her to track the ships, the most recent ships to arrive into the port and are into Dublin Bay and then the most recent ones to leave and they're just tracking them by their names that are presented on these monitors, black I've and I've seen
0: white. those and the power yeah, of naming
5: again. The naming of poetic, yeah, poetic writing and that's it and, and if you know about it you'll go down there in a different way but if you don't know about it you're going to be come across this thing and it'll the names will change and it's a It's intriguing and it makes us think think,
0: Coming back to the book the workplace and the nature of the sculptor's work are examined in two sections of it Arts Tonight visited the National Sculpture Factory in Cork to see the workplace of many contemporary sculptors
7: So we're here in the National Sculpture Factory today and it's very bright, clear morning and it's interesting to see that it's uh, actually artists are just beginning to come in now and get bedded into their projects. They're working quite hard at the moment because they have a lot of deadlines. I suppose we've evolved the building since we've done two major architectural interventions. The mezzanine, designed by Tom de in 1999. And that's an extraordinary lead-clad structure that's elevated off the floor. An award-winning piece of architecture, something we're very proud of. And Tom was uh, an architect in residence here years ago, so I suppose we have a long-term relationship with him as a creative practitioner. And then the other intervention is this new and extended frontage onto the street, designed very beautifully by Robin Lee Architects, who are based in Dublin and that again has given us increased street profile and those relationships I suppose with architecture are very important to us we really see architecture as the other side of sculpture of similar material obsessions kind of scale in the public realm so we're now working quite closely with the School of Architecture here in Cork so right now you'll see on the floor we have their master's students in who are getting some technical training around model making there's lots of noise in the, art, in the background the process of art making it's a beautiful kind of experimental laboratory here now is a typical studio that's in transition so we'll have a new artist arriving in here tomorrow so this is this kind of size of a studio that somebody would have who's working on ceramics and glass and I see Root Lines there actually Ruth is working with us on a number of capacities
8: Um, The minute I'm working on a commission for a landscape project in Leeds so I'm working with a group called Pavilion so I'm, I'm building that here and then transporting it over to Leeds at the end of next month for exhibition in the Hepworth Wakefield Gallery at the same time working on a project with Dreyhead Art Centre that is kind of another manifestation of the same thing which looks at kind of the history of triangulation and the hardware. Um, my, my work would really be rooted in the landscape of Ireland but at the same time it is important to kind of be working abroad to have, to have a sustainable art career. I work in a broad range of materials. Um, the last project I did I was carving uh, rock salt from County Antrim from the mine, um, and I'm currently working in aluminium and mirror-polished stainless. So it's more about the concept of the work than the material, but I kind of learned through working with various materials. Um, The location is fantastic, I mean to have these facilities to work with hard materials, to work with stone and metal, right in the city centre is just really unique. Um, so you'll see as we're walking kind of down now you begin to kind
7: of enter the kind of world of the studios I suppose on the right and the left you have different artists working here on the right you have a studio of Maud Cotter and uh, you'll see Maud has her own studio in Cork and indeed is one of our founder members but Maud has now reserved a studio here for about 14 months you're beginning to see uh, new concepts for a big uh, private gallery show in London the market here is small for buying sculpture actually I've also had less state money for collections to be built by the state agencies We have a fantastic technician, Donald Dilworth, and he comes from a kind of boat building and steel background. And then we have another expert, John Booth, in terms of wood. So we have technical expertise available on the staff. Their main job is to kind of monitor and make sure the floor is a very safe environment, but also to provide supports to artists when they need it. A few years ago, we brought over the Materials Library from London, beginning to look at what is the role that artists have in pushing materials beyond their natural limitations. So we're looking now to set up some new programs with industry here in Cork, how could artists have access to, say, the sorts of materials that are down in the Tyndall Institution, UCC, or in the Apple Factory, or in some of the pharmaceuticals? Because that's all research. And this role, I suppose, of artists as researchers and knowledge producers is one the creative sector really needs to be keeping its territory. That's a very valuable activity. Being, having a studio, being in a studio is very valuable work. You see artists every day come in here and actually work really hard, You know, both at the conceptual level and devising ideas. And then you'll see some projects that are really physically hard to deliver here, large sculptural projects. Now here on the right you'll see, uh, this is the studio of Joe Neeson, who's an artist, a graduate of uh, Crawford College. And you'll see the work of a very international artist, Tony Craig. Now Tony Craig made a big project here for the Olympic Games in Atlanta. Craig came to Ireland to make the work because the skill around materials was very high. He's now based in Germany as an English sculptor. And these beautiful uh, bronze work are shipped over here to the National Sculpture Factory and Joe Neeson and his team finish the work. They kind of sand them down, refine them, and then they're shipped back to Germany for private collectors or for museum shows. You'll see here uh, found materials and artists working in wood, these beautiful woodworks. So I suppose, you know, on one hand you've got bronze on one side and you've got wood on the other. So artists are always looking at different materials.
0: Mary McCarthy there in the National Sculpture Factory in Cork. And from that recording, you hear something of, of the physical nature of the making of sculpture. And Paula, in, in the book, I think you really wanted to highlight that aspect of it—you know, the sheer physicality of this art form.
2: It has. I wanted these images to be there so that people would not just be looking at sculpture, but would also become aware of the extent to which it is a physical endeavour. And one of the things I think interesting about sculpture generally is there don't seem to be that many self-portraits. My feeling about this is that it has something to do with how much of their own being they have to put physically into a work that they're making. And there's a whole range of images there because you've got Gabriel Hayes hanging in her scaffolding on the front of the building in Kildare Street where she was carving the reliefs. You've Morris Harding working on capitals up in St Anne's Cathedral in Belfast you have Brian King out in a field digging earth for a land art piece that he's doing so the variety is interesting too and the different materials that they're working with
0: Uh, Mary McCarthy also mentioned that the extent of of research that artists carry out today Uh, sculptors know not only their material also the history uh, from which all of this emerges William you write about uh, contemporary sculptors like Michael Quayne Somebody working in stone, very much aware of the tradition he comes from, somebody like Seamus Murphy, but also shaping something distinctly new out of the old.
4: Or he doesn't express himself to be conscious of uh, being a traditionalist. I mean, as he as he describes my essay, he says, um, I think in, in stone, you know, he doesn't think of himself as having to sort of go backwards. And so the 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 contemporary quality of his work is the psychology and and it's it's innovative. If you think of the roundabouts where he's got man and beast sort of working together, um, they sort of. Completely challenge the old tradition of a figure on a horse who's an authority. Is this figure. in
0: in where in Mallow?
4: The one in Mallow particularly, and there there are other figures that are sort of engaged with the beast. And if you think of man and animal traditionally, it's this sort of dynamic of human authority over nature, over the beast, etc., etc. And it expresses you know an individual in power. And it's one of the great continuums in public sculpture is the sort of man on a horse with a sword usually (laughs) and you know for instance Florence and they, they wouldn't have one in Florence because they knew somebody would want to take over as soon as you put up a figure on a horse that's a key you know so he's engaged with that and it doesn't look immediately radical but in fact that dynamic of of man and animal at an equal level is actually quite a new thing
0: um Tom Fitzgerald, then, is another artist who has pushed the boundaries with regard to, to his use of materials. Uh,
4: and he carried on by sort of moving out of sculpture to an extent. I mean, we, we've just touched on that in the essay that he's doing much more sort of two-dimensional work now. And I think part of the beauty of his work is that he has that instinctive aversion to getting trapped into one one medium. So he he keeps moving on.
0: Uh, Cliona, tell me a little bit about an online resource and um, archive for public art that you've been involved with, uh, publicart.ie.
5: Publicart.ie was uh, was commissioned by the Arts Council and the department in, I think, it was 2009. I was involved with that with Sarah Searson and Jenny Brady. And it was intended to pull together the whole field of public artworks that were happening and had been commissioned particularly in the last decades. So we began with this archive trying to create a a directory, looking really mostly at work starting currently and trying to build up the directory over time to put in uh, sections on how you would commission a work, um, critical writing, videoed and made interviews with artists and with commissioners. And then obviously there's a section there that will list down the news and what kind of opportunities might be upcoming. So, he's looking at it again just today, and it has actually it, it evolved into this extraordinary resource. I think there's 250 works now in the directory. The directory is very um, informative with links uh, to other websites, and it's you know a very consistent way in which it's collecting the information with also with images and texts.
0: That's publicart.ie. Of course, sculpture has inspired. Other artistic responses, Tom Kilroy's play The Shape of Metal, for example, and this poem by Enda Wiley, inspired by Rachel Joint's sculpture The Mothership in Dunleary, in Dublin.
6: Summer came and we dived from the sea path like feeding turns down onto the granite rocks. Bladderrack, barnacles, crabs, our after-school prey, our parents above staring out over Scotsman's Bay. We had rubber-clad feet, buckets as bags. We were cruel and carefree, stuck sticks into the deep red anemone, yanked sea sprats from their warm rock pools, pierced winkles with sewing needles and did not care. Then from the sandy-bottomed waters the seals rose. Their sleekness, a soft oil poured over our clamour, and we were soothed into stillness, perched ourselves close to the cormorants drying their outstretched feathers. Now, just there, across the path, silver droplets stream from the sculpture's shell, a bronze-cast sea urchin turned on its bumpy side, like an ear hoarding the sea's roar, a cave full of children's cries, Echoes of what we were before St. Michael's Church burnt to the ground. The great blackbirds had all flown south. The baths grown derelict before we ever knew the bogeyman might come to chase us home along the metals.
0: See urchin, thereby end Wiley, a poem inspired by the sculpture The Mothership by Rachel Joint it is a very a striking aspect of sculpture in this country isn't it that, that there is such a strong female presence there,
2: there is a strong female presence and actually are, are now very important in Irish sculpture the first in, in the biographies is a woman Annie Atchison uh, a northern sculptor, and actually the last one is Daphne Wright now it doesn't mean that they're all female and it's not uh, a, a feminist book by any means um, Eliza Kirk who was one of the Kirk family in the 19th century a daughter of very very well known uh, sculptor at the time Thomas Kirk her two brothers were sculptors as well when the father died in 1845 the obituary mentioned the two brothers and they never mentioned Eliza who was a practising sculptor at the time we've come a long way from that
0: the book uh, is here now and it brings so much together from 1600 to 2000 and I think for, for anyone who will browse in it or indeed delve deep into it there is so much uh, to explore and so much to learn paulo what impact and maybe this is a a very big question but uh, what would you hope this book will achieve in terms of of broadening perhaps the study and appreciation of of sculpture and sculptors in this country
2: i suppose i've all sorts of hopes for it one of them may surprise you given the size of the book and the amount of information is in there i hope this leads to more writing on sculpture because i know putting this together i could see all sorts of areas that need to be opened up so that it leads to more research is i think important very particularly i would like it to make people aware of sculpture I I think they do need to be encouraged to look. And I hope the book does that.
0: Paula Murphy, Cliona Chaffrey and William Gallagher, thank you all very much. The five-volume Art and Architecture of Ireland, including this volume three, Sculpture 1600 to 2000, published by the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre by Yale University Press. On next week's programme, Alice Lyons, curator of the forthcoming Poetry Now DLR Book Festival in Dunleary, will discuss the notion of poetry as perpetual speech. Join us then. Good night.
4: Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Clean and the Onloon.